consistency is the single most rare thing amongst podcasters. If you uh, don't have a good show, you can do a million podcasts and no one's going to, yeah. you're not going to pick up an audience. Presuming that your subscribers are below where the quality of your content is, which most people believe if they think that they're good at this, just keep going. Yeah. Like, literally just keep going and eventually you'll grind away. All right. What's up, everybody? This is Other Life. I am Justin Murphy. I just wanted to let you know that I write a free newsletter to thousands of people every week. It's where I publish my best work. I share events that you can come to and much more. We have an insane private community around the newsletter and it's free. Go check it out. Just go to otherlife.co. That's otherlife.co. When you subscribe, I'm going to send you a folder of PDFs that contain all of my personal highlights from a bunch of my favorite books that I've read over the years. So you'll get a million insights after just a few minutes of browsing these PDFs, really. They're really special to me and I just figured I'd share them with you all. So that's otherlife.co, otherlife.co. My point is, you realize just how specialized some of the optimization on YouTube and those kinds of channels has become now. It's the, the specialists have got specialities. Right. You know? Right. It's like you're not just a surgeon, you're a, a surgeon that works on, you're a pediatrician surgeon or you're whatever. I see. So these companies will basically do like custom dashboards, custom statistics, even kind Precisely. of trying to. Uh, the, do- these are the buckets of content that we've found are the most for you. I mean, dude, they were saying, uh, They'd broken down, your audience is mostly male, but the women that watch your content are watching for longer, way longer than the men are. What does this mean? Hmm. I'm like, oh my God. And you have someone doing this for you? uh, Just now, I've got one bro who owed me a big favor. He got one of the members of his team to do a full pull of everything. So I've got this call tomorrow, which I'm super excited for. I was like, oh my God, you know that the women are watching for long. I mean, it it would be in there if you were to filter stuff down by, this is like talking to somebody that does Facebook ads and going, oh, wow. So you can see that people in New Zealand click through more than people in Australia. Yeah, obviously, mate. But for those of us that don't know it, you actually realize there's tons of data sitting below the surface of your uh, understanding, your newbie understanding. So how would you change your strategy based on an insight oh, like God, that with women no watching idea. longer? But, I mean, that's the point, right? This is the, the criticism that They'll people have. That. Maybe, but the criticism that people have of wearables like Whoop or an Apple Watch is <clears throat> you have all of this data. How do you actually change your daily right. routine based on it? <laughs> yeah. So it, it's very much, that's the question to ask. It's like, look, all of this sounds great. How does this change my strategy? So in initially growing your channel to the place where it is now, I think you have around 300,000 subscribers, which is, you know, very good. How, did you think a lot about these types of strategic and tactical concerns? Did you optimize a lot? Or, or when did you start taking that stuff seriously? Yeah, so we're about to hit 400 this week. So oh, sorry, I, 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 I don't undersell me. Don't undersell me, man. <laughs> um, yeah, so I realized at the start of the pandemic that I wanted to kind of turn pro with the show. Huh. Uh, and part of that meant covering all of the different bases. So turning pro is a concept from Stephen Pressfield's The War of Art. Uh, and it's just taking things seriously, right? And and it's kind of uncool to take stuff seriously. Everybody likes the person that sort of rocks up and lackadaisically just sort of meanders their way through stuff. That's why Rogan's show is so successful because it feels very conversational. It's super casual, naturalistic. Um, but behind that, the team that's behind that, that's booking, the, the, he does his own guest booking, but still like the selection of the guests is very, very specifically done. And most of the people that are very successful on YouTube, I'm sure you'll have seen that uh, Mr. Beast segment on Rogan, where he said that him and his friends deconstructed YouTube videos for an entire summer and learned everything. I realized if I want to compete 
on YouTube, I need to kind of understand the platform. So there's a course called 30 Days to a Better YouTube Channel by Video Creators. And uh, it's 180 bucks or something. And it just gives you a really nice ground basics foundation understanding of how it works. So I did that. And <clears throat> I was like, oh, well, all right, that's, I have, I have a good understanding of thumbnail design, titling, what works, what, what doesn't, what people spend their time on that really doesn't make any difference. Mm -hmm. Tags, it, they literally don't make any difference. <laughs> okay. um, optimizing for stuff like comments are very, very slim in terms of that. What does search volume mean? What does it mean when you have a title? What's the optimal title length? It turns out that the average number of characters in a title of the top video on any suggested feed is 43, or it was the year that this data was pulled from okay so 43 go for 43 if you can but is there a lot of variance around that or is that actually a really didn't say that well didn't. that well that would matter right like is that actually a really high leverage thing to hit that 43 number does that really matter you think or i would say it's probably a good thing to work toward because over about 60 it truncates oh yeah right. and it goes to dot 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 yeah. off the end so certainly trying to avoid doing that is probably a good place to start but then you get one layer deep and you go well maybe you can even use that as an open loop to get people to click because they want to see what the end of the sentence is. Right. So there's like yeah, yeah. layers within layers with it. But yeah, I, I spent a good bit of time working on it. And I have a theory that unless you get gifted the uh, superstardom by some other huge channel or you're coming in with an existing audience from maybe a different platform, you need to play the game very well. Right, you know, you look at someone like Lex Friedman who maybe doesn't optimize thumbnails and titling and stuff in the same way that other YouTubers would do, but he also got to go on Rogan eight times in three years, right? And is a super genius, right? In in certain areas, so he didn't need to play the game quite so much. So what you're saying is, unless you have access to some kind of uh, powerful growth factor that's kind of exogenous, then you have to get really serious about things like titles and thumbnails. It's just, it is the, the YouTube game. It's the currency. Right. Yeah. And so how do you think about the relationship between YouTube and the podcast feed? Because you were, you were mentioning some interesting ideas to me before we started recording. Because so Modern Wisdom is a YouTube channel. It's also a podcast, right? Correct. Same, same title. Yep. Um, and so how do you think about um, growing both of those at the same time? How are you allocating effort across the two? What matters the most? What maybe doesn't matter? Yeah. So I guess it depends on what your goals are. My goals with the channel are to get me to the stage where I can have sufficient capital and sufficient income to get a team that can outsource a lot of the things that I don't want to do. And we're not quite there yet. Sure. <clears throat> I know that growing the audio is the quickest route toward me achieving that because your CPM in terms of advertisers on audio is way, way higher than it is on YouTube. So what you're saying is having the attention on a podcast feed is worth more Correct. than having the attention yep. on YouTube. I would see one play or one subscriber on audio as being worth around about 100 on uh, YouTube. So that's the level of attention that I try and put across. Now, that being said, that doesn't mean that you can't be good at YouTube. And there's a lot more to optimize with YouTube. You don't have a thumbnail on audio. Your titles don't matter as much on audio. You've got push notifications and people tune in to listen on their way to work. It's not the way that YouTube, YouTube's much more a stadium floor Royal Rumble. Right. Whereas uh, a podcast feed is like a one-on-one -on -one match. Perhaps. And another obvious difference is that there's discovery on YouTube, very powerful discovery if you get these things right, like the titles and the thumbnails. Precisely. Right. Now, do you find that a lot of people who find you through YouTube convert to also becoming podcast subscribers? Or this not is, a lot do? This is a difficult 
game to play, unfortunately. The problem is that if you are a YouTube channel that is taking people off-site when they land on your videos, your videos are going to be distributed less because mm. click-throughs and watch time are the only two things that matter on YouTube, really. Everything else is a rounding error, mm -hmm. right? Can you get people to click? Can you get people to stay? There's another thing called session time as well, which is if you bring them to the site, but click-throughs and watch time, optimize for that. Now, if your watch time gets chopped in half because you've got some call to action or a little pop-up link ah. or your pinned comment says, listen to this on Apple Podcasts, you're now curtailing the growth on YouTube to drive somebody to the audio. And this is a difficult game to play because you go, well, I want to grow the YouTube, but I have this big audience and the discoverability and the virality that you said, but if I use that and I drive people away, I'm going to kill the reach. So it's constantly kind of this balancing act between them. Overall, I think that cross-pollination from platform to platform now increasingly seems to be less and less. Mm. You have people that are specialists in TikTok, in Instagram, not even in just Instagram anymore. You have people that are specialists in Instagram reels or in Instagram carousels or in uh, like wisdom content or in lifestyle content or whatever. So each platform is now breaking out. Loads and loads of people have got huge platforms on one that can't convert it across to another. That being said, big email list, big podcast or big YouTube channel, I think is higher up the tree than the others. I think you can convert a YouTube audience across to Instagram, TikTok, uh, and Twitter more effectively than you can do the reverse, for instance. Right. Like in other words, you're not going to drive, you're not going to grow your YouTube channel by uh, pulling a massive Instagram from an Instagram. Right. Right. <laughs> yeah. um, interesting. Okay. So how do you then manage that uh, this, this tension or this trade-off? Um, like how often on your videos are you telling people there's a podcast, trying to get them to go subscribe to the podcast? Not at all, basically. Basically not. No. So, so you're kind of suggesting an attitude where within each platform, you just focus on making the best content for that platform and growing on that platform. Correct. And that's it. And you just kind of accept you're not going to be cross-pollinating. There might that, be some accidentally, but you're not trying to do that at all. Yeah, that might be a bit of a cope for me, or I might be lowballing it, but that's the working idea that I've got at the moment. Um, in terms of growing audio, it's difficult, man. I mean, there's, you've said it before, there's no discoverability, there's no virality. Getting featured on Apple's new and noteworthy page is really difficult. Spotify basically doesn't have a trending page so much anymore. And if it does, why is someone going to click on the logo and the name of your show? Right. Um, it's brute force, really. You know, it's consistent. This is, I always use this stat. 90% uh, of podcasts don't make it past episode three. And of the 90% that do, 90% don't make it past episode 20. So by making 21 podcasts, you're in the top percentile of all podcasters ever. Right. And that that means that consistency is the single most rare thing amongst podcasters, mm. right? Mm -hmm. um, therefore, just focus on that. And over time, people, if you don't have a good show, you can do a million podcasts and no one's gonna, yeah. you're not gonna pick up an audience. Presuming that your subscribers are below where the quality of your content is, which most people believe if they think that they're good at this, just keep going. Yeah, Literally just keep going and eventually you'll grind away. Dude, if you could see the graph, if you could see the yeah. graph, it's so embarrassing of our performance over time. It's just flat. It's completely flat. And I think right. back to For the how time. Long? For how long? Well, it's all relative, but looking back now at where the graph is at the moment, it's flat for two years, two and a half years. And how long have you been doing all this total? Four years. 
the the YouTube and the podcast both. Correct. Yep. Four Launched years. Launched them both at the same time. Yeah. Okay, so four years ago, and it's, it was flat for almost all of it. Pretty much two years, completely flat, and then like wiggles, and then up and up and up. Right. But that this is the nature of any exponential yes. growth, yes. right? As you zoom out more and more, uh, maybe in. Uh, another four years time I'm going to look at what we're doing now and go oh my god can you believe in 2022 I thought that we were doing well on plays right so you just don't know how paltry anything is going to look yeah. with the benefit of hindsight yeah but if you're looking to make a quick book uh, audio is not the way to go because right. the growth is so slow That's right. and it's so arduous um, if you are enjoying the process and genuinely feel like you've got longevity in the game then if you can continue to do it and just stick it out as a game of attrition longer than everybody else that will help um but yeah audio's a it's a brutal game man really is yeah no i love your perspective on it though you have a lot of strong opinions and you clearly have experience succeeding in this so it's fascinating to pick your mind on it i noticed that on your youtube channel you do a variety of content. You'll do long form conversations, which presumably go to the podcast, but you also do some one-off videos um, on different topics. You'll talk about current events, wisdom, and, and so on. Um, how do you decide like what goes, is it only the conversations that go to the podcast or do the short form go to the podcast as well? So how, the, how do you think about that? Yeah, the, the podcast feed on audio is conversations only. Right. Uh, and YouTube for me is a, a lot more experimental. Um, again, remembering that one play or one subscriber is worth a hundred on YouTube. I think that you need to be a lot more careful with what you put on your uh, podcast feed. Okay. Um, there is stuff, there are episodes that I've recorded where I've been a little bit unsure about whether or not they meet the standard. If I didn't have the podcast feed, they would, I would be fine putting them up on YouTube. Um, main reason being people can only listen to one thing at once. If you take up someone's ear real estate, and they regret listening to that or they don't feel like they were entertained or educated mm. or got value from it. I don't know how many lives you get of doing that, but I don't think it's that many. So you think that the propensity to unsubscribe on the podcast is very strong. It's like people are really trusting you with, with their brain in a way. And if you, Precisely. if you piss that away, then they're going to be like, don't be frivolous. GTFO. Yeah. Yep. Whereas YouTube, it's, it's less sensitive. It's like, if it's a bad video, they'll scroll, yeah. you know, they'll click away, but they're not going to really care that much. The other thing is that a lot of what you, a lot of what your audience is being delivered on YouTube. So few of your subscribers see your content. So a lot of it is still, even with a huge channel and especially with a huge channel, it's new, sub, it's new people that haven't seen the stuff before. They're not going to mind. They start watching something, they click off. That's the way that it's done. Mm. Audio is much harder to build, but much more difficult to, to kill in a way. Right. Because you've got this momentum you've built up over time. But if someone's subscribed and they've listened a lot, they're going to feel a lot more intimate with you. But the way that a podcast works, you're basically like a, a god walking around in someone's ears, right? Speaking to them as they go about their day, picking up their kids or training in the gym or doing the dishes. You need to treat that relationship with requisite respect. You know, the quality of the audio needs to be not as beautiful perhaps as this is, but it needs to be nice. People will not put up with bad audio. They'll put up with bad video, but they won't put up with bad audio. And, you know, just keep on treating it like a very sensitive relationship. I have a friend who had and still has a big podcast feed, but decided that he was going to try and add a total new project into the same feed and basically cut his listens in half over the space of six months due to a project that n most of his audience didn't care about. And he, the amount of unsubscribes, you go, okay, you've just knocked two years of work off hmm. there, and now you've got to go all over again.
Interesting. Interesting. And so what were some of the, what, what was the first inflection point in your growth that you noticed? Um, it was kind of steady away. It's difficult to say because the hockey stick always feels like a hockey stick at the time and looks embarrassing in retrospect. Uh, I mean, Jordan Peterson episode one, which we did at the start of 2021 was, that was good. That really gave us a nice big kick. But I mean, before that, James Clear, Ryan Holiday, Robert Green, you know, all of these people had like been ticking up and ticking up. Um, but yeah, Peterson was a big one. Last year, we had some other really big episodes. Douglas Murray has done great for me. Uh, but you just don't know what's going to drive the plays. Sure, sure. But clearly, I guess famous people have something to do with it. Like- well, think about what, uh, especially on audio, if I don't know who you are and I don't know your feed, right. why am I going to listen to something that you've got to say? Mm-hmm. Two main reasons that I can see. One is you're bringing somebody that I already am a fan of to your show. So I'm going to listen to your show to get access to them. Mm-hmm. The other reason might be that you are saying something that I can't get anywhere else. You're talking about a topic or a niche or coming at it from an angle with a p- type of expertise, which is difficult for me to get somewhere else. Um, I don't have a whole ton of expertise uh, in any one particular area. So my growth strategy had to be getting names that would bring people in. And what you do is when you are on the come up, you need to ride on other people's coattails. And after a little bit of time, you can then start to bring in unknown names that you champion, you know, underground right. heroes and interesting right. people. But you can't do that in the beginning. If you think that's a growth strategy, it's ask yourself why someone is going to listen to an unknown show with an unknown guest. Right. What's the reason for them doing that? There right. simply isn't one. Sure, sure. Um, Maybe we could talk about this because uh, something you're clearly very good at. Uh, you've secured a lot of uh, famous guests, and you've done very well doing so. It's something that I I don't find particularly natural, and I think I'll probably a lot of people have hangups when it comes to this. I uh, don't not to psychoanalyze myself or something, but um, there's a certain kind of um, activation energy required to you know kind of uh, send a lot of emails out to famous people. Obviously, you're going to be ignored by by many of them, but then you'll get some, and then it gets easier over time as you as you already have some in the backlog. Maybe you could unpack a little bit about the the strategies and the tactics of or the mindsets perhaps of you know um how you first went from you know nobody to thinking like all right i gotta get some big names i'm gonna try to get them how did you try to get them what works what doesn't work what are some ways of thinking about it maybe i myself need to benefit from because it's nothing it's nothing that i've ever been particularly ambitious about or focused on um i've I've had the good fortune of over time getting to know some famous people or whatever but it's certainly not not something that i optimize for very much at all and if I'm being honest, I probably have kind of. I, I, there's something that, that doesn't sit well with it, with with it in 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 my in my heart, like or some, maybe I'm anxious, or maybe I'm fearful of rejection, or yeah. something. So, as someone who's done very well with it, um, how do you think about it? Clickbait is the price you have to pay to create the content that you really enjoy. Okay. Right. So th- that was a quote I heard at the Heterodox Academy conference last week. Do you know what it is? I don't think that that's too far off. A lot of the time, the clickbait content actually ends up being fun or whatever. But you you bring people on the show that may not be slap bang in the middle of your wheelhouse of who you'd love to speak to, but you know that they're going to bring a lot of plays in. So you have to remember that this is part of the growth strategy. Thankfully for me, I, I've all of the people I speak to, I'm interested in. It happens to be that the ones I'm interested in and the people that bring big plays in uh, align pretty sure. nicely. Um, y- 
you will be able to look in your past to find people that owe you favors. And those people will probably know people that you could do with getting on your show. So you ask for a warm intro. Correct. From a friend. That's a great way to begin. Yeah. You, you say, know. hey, can you email yeah. me and Jordan Peterson? Say hi. Say why he should be interested. Exactly. Say, say a brief, nice word. And then and then that has a high success rate. For sure. Compa- I mean, think about how many cold emails someone like a Jocko or a Huberman or right. a Goggins or whatever will have to try and come on someone's show. So you need to know that, I mean, you can send a cold email, but it is a very, very low success chance. Talking about the mindset, um, rejection just isn't, you, you, it's not a thing. You, you haven't got them now. So pitching them to come on your show is only a, a profit yeah, opportunity. You, you, you can lose nothing. Precisely. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and it's an email. Um, other things in terms of principles, really, really respect people's time. So it needs to be, the, the email needs to be readable within 15 seconds. Short and sweet. Yeah, as as short and sweet as possible. Hi, I want to bring you on my show. This is why you should consider it. This is what we talk about. Let me know. Like, that that will, I remember thinking back about the original pitch emails that I used to use four years ago. Like, it was so long and wordy and there would be like a breakdown of right, all of right, the different right. things that I wanted to talk about and blah, blah. Like, it's, especially if you're pitching to somebody that's way above your value as a mm-hmm. podcaster or as a YouTuber or whatever, um, it's going to be an impulse decision anyway. It's not going to be a thought out decision because if they thought it out, they'd say no. <laughs> so right. it needs to be the sort of thing that actually optimizes for impulse. Look, I, I, I'd love to do this. I'm a big fan of your work, blah, blah, blah. If you've got some nice stats around... Uh, we're currently in the top 50 of the society and culture charts on right. Apple Podcasts. You know that That's a great place to throw it in. Now, over time, you actually end up having stats that sound as impressive as they need to be that catch people's eyes, or you begin to accumulate a back catalogue of guests that also makes people go, oh, bloody hell, Jordan Peterson and Robert Green. And, James and do you Green. do that? Do you name drop past yeah, big guests? Sure. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> I name drop. You're damn yeah. right I do. Um, that and, and the numbers. So you can go, oh, we did you know 10 million plays last month and uh, 400 or 500 episodes and 100 New York Times best-selling guests. And, but if you're small, you just kind of avoid those small Precisely. Numbers, yeah. But the advantage you have of when you're small, especially on audio, is that no one can see your plays. <laughs> yeah. No one knows. Right. You could be doing three plays a week and nobody knows. Uh, in fact, the reason I use three is because the month of March 2020, no, 2018, was three. We did three plays. And that was four weeks or something after we'd launched. And I'll always remember that. That was the lowest week of plays that we ever did. But... No one knows. Whereas on YouTube, people can see. Like, it's all out in the open. You can't really hide that. And most of yours have been remote? And they still are mostly remote? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 500 episodes, and I would guess that less than than 100, definitely maybe less than 50 have been in person. Okay, and now that you're here in Austin, are you looking to have a studio build out the IRL in-person thing, or that's just not your uh, MO? I would consider it longer term. Uh, I want to do it. If I'm going to do it, I want to make it a little bit different. We were discussing before we started about some of the ways that I think there's kind of holes in the the podcast production world at the moment, and I'd quite like to fill some of those. Um, for the time being, we're really performing well with the virtual ones. Again, this is another advantage for small creators. You know, a nice Logitech C220 webcam and a Yeti microphone is the whole setup, and maybe a couple of LED lights, the whole setup can be less than 250 bucks. Sure, and it's really quite decent. And it is better than almost everybody, right, on the internet. Uh, and you can put that up and you go, well, that that's going to count for a lot. Um, so the fact that 
COVID, it wasn't good for many things, but it was pretty good for encouraging people to get used to listening to podcasts virtually. Yeah. You know, Rogan made a big sna- stance about, I'm not going to do non-in-persons and this, that, and the other, but when a pandemic happens, he was in right. the same boat as everybody right. else. He had to. If he wanted to keep the show ticking over, he had to do virtual episodes. And that really acclimatized a lot of the audience, I think, to treating it as, as long as the audio is of good quality, and if you're on YouTube, as long as the editing's done nicely, I'm happy to watch this. So that was good stuff on soliciting famous guests. And if you don't hear back, do you follow up? Do you follow up once, twice? Do you just give up? Probably once. Once, yeah. Um, I think, yeah, because you're going to end up in the, if you keep doing it for long enough, you're going to end up in the um, circle again at some point in future. Right. And what you don't want to do is destroy that relationship so hard that you basically have curtailed your ability to get them when you can get them before you could could have got them. Yeah. You know what I mean? Right, right. Um, So, yeah, be... Uh, reaching out to the right people using warm intros if you can is a great way to do it uh and just not getting discouraged like you'll get people the 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 people that your dream guests now you'll end up having on your show in two or three years time and then you'll be thinking about the next one yeah okay fascinating and so when you decided to really get serious with professionalizing your channel as you said during the pandemic uh, what were some other things that you realized, oh man, I haven't even been thinking about that. I got to do this. It's really high leverage. So certainly optimizing the titling and thumbnails on YouTube was something that I just hadn't given a whole lot of thought to. We we made something that we thought looked nice or featured the guest or did something, but I just didn't understand the principles. And again, this is why you need to learn YouTube. Um, having a signature style. So we worked with a designer at the beginning of 2020 who gave us a proper branding package, colors, fonts, um, do's and don'ts, arrangement styles. So our thumbnails are relatively plug and play now. There's maybe four types and from those four, my editor will choose whatever he thinks works best with the imagery that we're looking for and the uh, text that we're looking for. But it means that when you see it, you know, say what you want about Lex and the fact that his channel is kind of more bare bones uh, in terms of the way it shows up on YouTube, but you see one of his thumbnails and you know it's his. Right. Black background, green text, guest in a different color, guest over on the right-hand side, dark image, slightly moody. Mm-hmm. That's one of Lex's episodes. You know it. So having a signature style is important. It's less important in the beginning because no one knows no who you are looking, anyway. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no one no one cares. But certainly it's the sort of thing future-proofing-wise that you should be considering um other stuff was consistency so when you're acquiring the skills in the beginning and and working out how to edit an episode or speak to a guest or book people in or what your tolerance for being able to have conversations is it's also something where you go well i don't know whether i can do one or five and over time you start to build that up publishing more frequently for me has been great um so we do three episodes a week and it is a big workload but i find it pretty um easy to hold on to and the growth that you get from one to two and then two to three is very much worthwhile ramping that up is that right and that's three on the podcast feed or three on the youtube or both so three on the podcast feed and six on the youtube so the youtube we also do our clips on that so i don't have a separate clips channel to my main channel um everything goes off there so monday thursday saturday is an episode uh podcast feed has nothing else then thursday wednesday friday on the youtube is a clip and that drives to the main full length. I see. So is this not counting some of the more one-off things that you do on YouTube? That would take up a clip spot. I so see. that would take one of the three uh, Tuesday, Wednesday, Fridays. 
Okay. And so I guess you have this kind of schedule, this release schedule, yes. and then each week you're like, here's what's going to fill it. Here's what's going to fill it. Precisely. And so you just hold yourself to, accountable. to delivering those slots, whatever you come up with. 100%. Interesting. Okay. And how far ahead are you planning generally? Uh, in terms of guests, I'm booked out. So we're at the middle of June now, and I'm booked out until August. Okay. Uh, Do you have a booker or? It's me. It's you. So yeah. so tell me about your team. Tell me about um, what are you doing and who else is helping and maybe ha- think about how you uh, how you build that team over time. Like what was the first hire? What was the second hire? And how you think about what should be outsourced when? It's not very sexy, sadly, because uh, it's very difficult to find somebody that knows your show as well as you. When it comes to titling and thumbnails specifically, that is such a unique art form and mm. it is the single highest leverage thing that you can do when it comes to growing the channel on youtube so that's still me so the brief for the thumbnail the design is done by my video editor but that's still me so i do basically more however first person that i got when i started the show was a video editor and i said dude we're going 50 50 down the middle on adsense everything that we make from youtube is half you and half me and he made 50 bucks in the first year and probably about a thousand pounds in the second year but then so far in 2022 has made like way more than his full-time job did for the back end of last year nice and you're still on 50 50 with him correct cool yeah um there's no written agreement there's no nothing i mean again this is a guy that i had an existing relationship with for seven or eight years he was a very good friend we knew each other we trusted each other implicitly but um that having somebody that is bought into the show that's either a shareholder or is on a cut or uh, it's going to improve their desire to invest and go above and beyond inevitably you're going to record an episode elon musk's tried to buy twitter and you want the episode to go out tomorrow so you need the guy that is as invested in it as you are someone on hourly or whatever some freelancer on the other uh, on fiverr that's working in bangladesh is not going to push as hard as you want them to and if this is something you care about i think finding someone that shares the vision is a really good way to do it so he was the first person Hmm. Uh, and then I got an assistant only toward the back end of, sorry, the start of last year. Uh, so three years in, I got an assistant. He's doing ancillary stuff, but most of the lift is still me, which is kind of uh, not, it's not a high leverage solution. However, there's a few things that I think you should never outsource. I don't think you should ever outsource your guest booking. Now you could get a guest booker to come in and there are companies and guys that I know that do this and they're mm-hmm. fantastic. Mm-hmm. The way that I see it as a podcaster or as a YouTube channel, right? Like if you were to be doing interviews and, and slots or whatever, the purpose of you as the creator, you're the curator, right? Of this museum or art gallery that people are stepping into. It's your job to pick what they see. Now, yeah, also you get to guide the conversation or whatever. But if you've got some guest booker that's like, oh yeah, they're a self-development channel. And over the last three months, you've been getting a little bit more icky around self-development and actually finding yourself moving toward fitness or web three or relationships or whatever they're not as agile and they're not as tapped in and also you need to care about the people that you're bringing on you need yeah, to genuinely be yeah. interested it's way easier to ignore a, a booker who's like a third party right it's like you don't feel any obligation to respond or you don't feel any kind of interpersonal you know um calling to to help a brother out you know it's like oh i don't feel like doing this you know yeah i, I mean I, that, that's so that makes a lot of sense to me that you would you would choose to to do that yourself 
Yeah, I don't think that outsourcing the guest booking is a good idea. It's kind of almost disrespectful, isn't it? It's like <clears throat> to the audience? No, to the person you're asking on. It's like, uh, oh, you, yeah. you know, it's almost like oh, if you really wanted me on your podcast, you could take you could take a minute to write me a personal email. So there's two types of guest booking that we're talking about here. One would be an intermediary between you and the person that you're speaking to. Another are companies that find guests that are doing the circuit and then throw them onto shows. That's the one that I'm talking about. Oh, oh okay. What you're talking about also. I'm not sure how I would feel about that. I do think that you're right. I do think that it probably still should be you that reaches out, especially if it's a higher value guest. Um, the real thing that I would avoid doing, however, is basically giving somebody else the choice of who comes on your show. Because that's see. what you're doing with one of the proper out-of-house guest bookers. Oh, uh, I see. Douglas Murray is doing the rounds, and you are one of the shows that breaches the threshold for what his he's happy to go on to do you want it. douglas murray on your show right and you could say I, who who is douglas murray i don't know who that is i don't care about him i don't know his work but yeah bring him on this becomes a very sterile environment right. gotcha. to try and have a interesting conversation in i understand the different model of, of third-party booking that you're talking about right so okay interesting yeah that makes a lot of sense to me and so who else um so you just have the video editor, editor social media so how does social media uh, mix into your overall strategy? What, you know, what is, what is the idea? Are you posting clips to social media? Um, how do you think about that? Is that important, not important or what? So it's really not given much priority, which is why it's outsourced. Um, I did social media for a long time, was doing like the whole influencer thing, uh, accumulated an okay amount of a following on there. On which ch channels? Uh, on pretty much everything. So uh, Instagram's at 150K, Twitter's at maybe 60K, something like that. So okay. it's like an appreciable following. Sure. Um, but <clears throat> I, I just don't care that much <laughs> about it, which is why somebody else does it. Now, the content that goes out, I get to veto. So it's all content that I do originally. Right. And then that gets repurposed. They're just making clips Precisely. from the content that you're yeah. doing. Or on Twitter, there'll be threads or quotes or whatever that come from an episode or from something that I've said or something a guest said right. or something that I've done on a newsletter. So an interesting way to think about uh, repurposing, I think, is actually a better way to look at it than social media. So my team, uh, the, the guys that do it, Amplify, they're a repurposing company that does social media, not a social media team. And the reason for that is that they take big chunks of content and then they pass, pass them down into bite-sized bits. When Peterson was on the show, he gave an amazing analogy. He said, it's like you could write a book and sell it by the sentence. <laughs> and that's what it is. Hmm. If you're a podcaster that's doing a weekly episode, that's an hour a week. If it's two, it's maybe two to two and a half hours. Three, it's up to four hours a week. You have bags and bags of content, but you can't be bothered to go through. And rightly so, you shouldn't. If you're the one that's doing the prep, that's doing all that stuff, going through and then finding the point where you say something interesting or the guest does then pulling it out then editing Insanely it then time consuming, yeah. it's a huge lift right. and that's not your highest point of contribution this right. is why these repurposing companies have come about right. um, but a good way to think about it is look if you can have some long form so either a, a long form YouTube video would be an okay start to do it or a podcast and or a newsletter that is enough to make weekly content across Twitter, TikTok, Instagram and probably Reddit if you even wanted to do that as well. And you can just have someone that will go through, that'll clip the content, put it up on the ones that are video, pull out stuff from the newsletter, quotes and insights or whatever it is that you're talking about. Yeah. Maybe make some threads, maybe make some individual ones. Mm -hmm. Maybe some of the video does go on Twitter, maybe it doesn't. 
that's a good foundation to build your social media off. And then you can dip in and out and add stuff if you want. Right. If you have some cool thought, you can go tweet something. Right. But I think we do maybe 20 posts a week or 30 posts a week that are repurposed from other stuff. That's stuff that I've said. It's stuff sure. that I would be happy to tweet. Right. It's just not stuff that I've had to go and schedule. Right. Totally. Makes sense to me. And so I guess this has a strong ROI. It must if you I don't it. know. Oh, um, you're not sure. I'm, I'm unsure. I feel like social media is one of those games where, at least to me, I have no idea what it does or whether it works, but everybody's terrified of not doing it. But it's not cheap, these services, right? They, no, they're you, not. It, you, you are right. They're not. But um, money is something that we have a little bit spare of and time is not. So for me... Not doing social media would feel like if if someone was to say, "Dude, you haven't posted on your social media for three months," I go, "Yeah, you're probably right. I probably should do." Um, therefore, just trialing this, continuing to take it over, I think staying relevant is a good idea. Sure. Um, I'm unsure about how important it is, and over time, social media will become less and less important as the main thing that you do becomes more of the main thing. Right. You know, if if you're a an Instagram influencer. Stop dicking about with YouTube. But if you're a YouTuber and time spent on Instagram is detracting from you making your YouTube channel better, stop dicking about on Instagram. Mm. And this is kind of how I see it, that I could pay the guys. Uh, I, I like appreciate the work that they do. They're good at it and just leave them to it. Right. Just focus, comparative advantage. Precisely. Now, I wonder how you might think about it if you were a bit smaller. Like, we may, Well, maybe one question would be, uh, when did you first start hiring that out? Because... You know, from my perspective, my operations, uh, you know, a good bit smaller than yours. I'm sure I have much less cash flow than, than you do. But um, I run a little uh, minimalist version of everything you're talking about. I'm active on Twitter uh, and I'm pretty slick and efficient with my workflows and my processes for, you know, doing the long form high value stuff, then chunking it off in different ways. Um, so everything you're saying makes perfect sense to me. And I already run a little minimalist version of it. All I, The only person I pay um, is a video editor. Yep. Um, who you've got to do that man. Yeah. It's the first place you've got yeah, to go. So so he basically does he takes the the audio and the video and he'll uh, edit it, put it to YouTube, he'll yep. edit it, put it to uh, the podcast. Um, and he does the thumbnails and titles and all of that stuff. Um, yep. So that's all the only thing that I hire out basically because I'm, I'm a smaller shop at, at the moment. Um, but I think a lot about, you know, what are the next steps? Like what is the next thing I should actually spend real money on? Um, and yeah, the, the repurposing seems like it's a high leverage thing because you the content's already there. That's the whole point of the of media, of scaling media. It's like once you make good stuff, it should be relatively cheap and easy to put it out into all different ways, right? Um, but it's really time consuming. So these are the kinds of things I, I think about. I'm sure many smaller channels, smaller podcasts, smaller YouTubes yeah. are, are like listening to this right now and, and thinking like, oh, is this for me? When will this be rational for me? Because yeah. um, some of the quotes I've seen for the companies and services that do this, it's like it's like not um, cheap. So I think I'd be talking about for the bottom, bottom end for someone to do it would be a couple of grand a month right up to if you get toward the real big boys like four grand to five grand a month right to do this now that would be you know one post a day across every social media right which is a lot of content but if no one cares about the stuff that you're putting out it's a lot of money totally no one really cares about it totally. so yeah i think um you've done it right by getting the video editor first it's just such a specialist task would re require a lot of skill acquisition to be able to do. Um, I would be tempted, if I was you, I would be tempted to get a, a YouTube thumbnail and title optimizer next. 
I actually think that that would be the next place that I would go because the highest point of leverage that you've got is going to be your discoverability and the attractiveness of your YouTube thumbnails. Now, in an ideal world, you would have your editor be the person that also is able to do that because that's going to right. remove another degree of conversation. So I would uh, either increase pay or increase share uh, and then buy a bunch of courses, throw it at them and say, look, go and go and learn this stuff. He's going to like this episode when he's editing. He's going to, he's going to, no, but I think, I I think I'm going to do what you said. I think I'll just offer him 50% of the AdSense, which is not much, but it gives him more uh, stake. Four years time, man. He could be making a a hell of a bunch of money. So yeah, yeah, I think that that is a really good place to look like improve your thumbnails, improve your titles. He's a smart guy. I think, I think he could just get better at it and uh, find incentives. Especially if you've got someone that's actually, you know, capable and growth minded. Um, yeah, the social media thing is an interesting one. Not that I'm disenchanted with it, but just it's not the highest point of leverage. The highest point of leverage is who's coming on your show? How good are they? What's your skill set like right. as a uh, an interviewer? What's your preparation like for the people that you speak with? Like Those are the real things that actually matter about the quality of your content. Mm. Then on top of that, um, what is the shop front looking like in terms of quality of recording, quality of video, Thumbnails, titling, upload schedule, those stuff. Everything else outside of that is kind of just a rounding error Mm. on top of the things that you do. Mm. I could not tweet for a year and it wouldn't surprise me if it made less than 5% of a difference to the show. But if I started to back off any one of those things, it's going to make a massive difference. Right. Fascinating. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And so what is... What what do you see as next for you? What are your what is your tell us about your larger, long term ambitions? Like, are you here to take over the world? Do you want to make a <laughs> massive media brand? Um, are you more modest about it? How do you, how, how do you think about what are you ultimately trying to do? Would you say? Good question. I I don't really know to be honest, man. I I'm a, an avatar. I'll fly the flag for the people that don't have a long term plan. <laughs> okay. Um, just not. It's not the way that I've sure. I, I really work. I'm very good at doing whatever's in front of me, but. Uh, those like what do you want written on your obituary things kind of always made me feel uncomfortable because I'm like, I don't really know. That being said, I love having the conversations that I do. The show is, I've never felt so competent and passionate about doing anything before. So for me to just do more of it is is great. Um, the schedule at the moment is a little bit punishing because of how much I have on myself. All the ad reads are done by me. All the thumbnails and titlings done by me. All of the clips are done by me, including the titling and thumbnails for those as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, a ton of the advertiser relationships are still with me because they're high value advertisers and they built them with me. I've grandfathered in a ton of people that I picked up before I had an ad agency. And now if I was to ship them off and have them email David or whatever at head office, they'd be like, well, hang on a second. This doesn't feel like the relationship I'm used to. So there's an anchoring bias that I'm kind of fighting with there. Um, But I suppose the position that I'm in now is maybe an interesting, slightly unique one for some creators to look at because it's whilst I'm straddling the small creator and big creator space, I'm not big enough to have Tom Bilyeu style studio audience with a ton of cameramen and a huge team, but I'm significantly bigger than someone that's like a bedroom creator. Mm-hmm. Uh, and but, so I'm, I'm trying to compete with the Tom Bilyeu's of the world whilst right. working like the bedroom creator. Right. And it's an interesting challenge at the moment. Right. And um, I'm like halfway between the bedroom creator and you basically. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And uh, this is why I think it's it's important for me to keep on having conversations like this because I want to remember what 
the challenges are like that I'm having now. Right. Ali Abdal's got this great insight where he says, you don't want to teach people that are 10 steps behind you. You want to teach people that are three steps behind you. Mm. And the reason for that is that when you're 10 steps ahead, you can't remember the challenges that you faced 10 steps ago. Right, right. Um, but yeah, for me, grow the show, keep on growing the show, just take over doing what I'm good at. I yeah. know that once we get to a million subs, I can start to look at splitting off into a separate clips channel, separate shorts channel. Until then, it's one channel on YouTube. I'm not going to do any of the split up stuff. Um, I've got some ideas behind maybe releasing some courses. I might have to have a chat with you about that, about some optimization and stuff. Um, there's a lot of latent leverage in there. I've done 500 episodes and I've asked the audience to subscribe basically or mm -hmm. buy some athletic greens or something. <laughs> so I've never really asked the audience for anything, uh, which kind of seems a bit dumb in the age of Jack Butcher and the, like build one, sell twice type leveragey mindset. Mm -hmm. But on the flip side of that, there are so many people that um, sell before the, they do the like right hook before they do the jabs right. in Gary V language um, and latent leverage like building up goodwill with your audience for a very very long time is only going to pay dividends as far as I can see um, so for instance when it came to releasing a newsletter we did 5,000 newsletter subs in the first day hmm. because I had this big community of people that had listened to stuff and believed in me and were prepared to give me their email address right so presumably or hopefully if and when I decide to monetize more hard, m maybe we'll see that same dynamic reflected. But, you know, if, if the show continues to grow the way that it is, I don't even know if I'm going to be bothered about monetizing. Maybe I'll just do the Rogan thing and just be like, well, I'm a, I'm a creator, or the Lex thing. I'm just a creator. All I do is have conversations. I don't need to do fan support It's hard. I've got a locals, I've got a pa Patreon. Um, but just do that. And I mean, that would be pretty cool. You know, to not, I have nothing to sell you. Um, right. That would be an interesting way to. But Lex does it. ads, doesn't he? He does, but he yeah. doesn't have anything to sell himself. Oh, you I know, see. I don't, right. He doesn't even do merch. Right. Um, Rogan, the same. You know, most people have got some sort of fan support, like Andrew Schultz. He's got his Patreon. Mm -hmm. Tim Dillon's got merch and Patreon. Chris mm -hmm. Delia's got merch and Patreon. Right. Uh, you know, Ali Abdal's got courses. Um, so, like, people piece these different things together sure. in different ways, but. Uh, yeah, just keep growing the show. Keep on getting access to interesting, cool people. Um, try and establish like a, a real signature style, I think. Once you've played by the rules, you can start to sort of fuck about with them and break them a little bit more, yeah. which is cool. Um, but the most, the best, best, best thing that I've found after a while is that you can start to actually shape the direction of the cultural conversation a little bit. Obviously, only within a tiny portion of a tiny portion of your mm -hmm. niche, but you can take some unknown psychotherapist from buttfuck nowhere in the middle of America that you know is an unbelievable communicator and has some great ideas and you can be the springboard for them to go and speak to people and you can improve the audience and you can create a platform for that person and that's the coolest thing because throughout all of your creative career most people's entirety of their creative career they're holding onto the coattails of other people but then if you do decide to sort of breach that threshold if you manage to get yourself to some degree of significance or a, an amount of plays and, and reach where you can be those coattails for other people, that's unreal. Because yeah. you remember how badly you needed the assistance from people in the first place. Yeah, yeah. And now you're the one that... So for instance, is this guy, Adam Lane Smith, who wrote this amazing tweet thread about psychological um, impacts and, and attachment theory and stuff. And I was like, if this guy can talk 10% as well as he can tweet, <laughs> this is going to crush. Brought him on. 
just annihilated it. It was the best played episode. It was Jordan Peterson and him were the two best played episodes of the mm. year. And this guy's a nobody. Ah. Off the back of that, he goes on Michaela Peterson's show. <laughs> he goes on a ton of others. Uh, all of his courses on Gumroad smashed. I mean, the guy would have been successful easily without my help. But it's just cool because I cared about what he did. Yeah. And I was able to contribute in some small way to being a bit of a an amplifier for it so totally. that's, that's like, very cool i'm gonna check unreal. that out i'm curious about that yeah yeah that's great and so maybe you could say more about how the newsletter mix it mixes in you know what made you decide to do that and you know how do you how does how does a newsletter fit properly into a system with a podcast and, and a youtube channel as someone who has all three of those i'm curious just how you think about you know what's the diagram linking the linking those three together the problem with the newsletter is that, uh, the problem with everything is that it, you don't own the audience, right? Like mm-hmm. this is yeah, newsletter yeah. 101, like own your audience right. and you don't get to own it anywhere else. Um, for me, I didn't have a writing outlet and I was finding myself getting to the end of a week, having had three or four big conversations and read some stuff and not really having any reason for me to recap what I'd learned throughout the week. So I decided to do a newsletter basically as an accountable way to do a journal and um, you mentioned it earlier on, I really want to drive this point home. By having a cadence to the publishing of your content, it keeps you accountable to yourself and to everybody else. Because you're accountable to the audience, you are accountable to yourself. And without the fact that the audience is breathing down my neck, and I know that if it's if I've been traveling or whatever, I, I don't actually usually ever leave the episodes anywhere near until they're about to be published. They're usually done at least a week in advance, but with the newsletter less so. I know that on a Monday morning at 7.30 a.m. British time, people are expecting an email from me. So if it's a Sunday and I've just got back from traveling or whatever, I need to write the the newsletter without the pressure of the eyes on me. And people probably wouldn't even care or maybe even, might not even notice. But in my head, they do. And that's a big deal. And that is a great motivator, especially if you find yourself as somebody that gets the willpower sapped by doing a lot of things as every small creator does mm-hmm. you know the hr marketing accounting you're, you're everyone mm-hmm. um the external accountability of the audience can feel like a burden sometimes but you have to remember that it's the buttress that's keeping you upright as well like it's the reason that you're working as hard as you are uh, and self-motivation is i mean anyone that's tried to do meditation or journaling or whatever knows that it's like it's pretty difficult but if your audience was watching you meditate or something and was doing it with you, this is why co-working spaces are such a big deal, right? Or those um, Zoom groups where people log on and do power sessions together. Yep. The newsletter I like, um, I don't use it really to drive a massive amount of plays to anything. I use it more for notifications and for soft stuff. So um, uh, this Andrew Huberman and Jocka Willink episode that I've got coming up, I said, um, this is happening. You can get excited about it. You know, it's not doing anything i do tie it in with some of the advertisers so um if we do special sales or if i want to um give the advertisers that i really care about and that i work with and that i use myself i have the opportunity to give them some extra exposure through that which obviously means that i can uh bump up the uh advertising rates for them because the performance is better Mm -hmm. it's another channel uh, you know the conversions that you get from newsletters are unbelievable in comparison with pretty much anything else except for maybe sms and it's for me the reason i like doing it is because it's another direct form of communication with the audience uh, and it allows me to kind of wrap up my thinking throughout the week there's not really massively a strategic element to it apart from the fact that i know that it'll future proof me for when i need it Hmm. it's like one of those things um the best time to start trading was five years ago the second best time is now 
that the best time to start a newsletter was five years ago and the second best time is now. Right. You can't lose by building one up. Yeah, I mean, if if you create a, a newsletter process where it takes you five hours to write each week, that's probably a bad idea because you, it's going to be so arduous and willpower sapping. But I'm exactly the sort of person that would have struggled to write a newsletter, I think, and we're now 102 newsletters deep. Never missed one. Always enjoy writing it. Look forward to it every single week. It takes 90 minutes, and now we're at 30-something thousand subs with a 50% open rate. Yeah, nice. Which is great. Yeah. Totally. And if I need to do something, if I want to launch a course or a new YouTube, or my YouTube channel gets taken down right. because someone hacks me, like mm-hmm. I at least have something that's a backup or that some new social media uh, platform comes up and I really, really want everybody to follow me on there because it's going to be the next big thing. Right. Like you've got the, that's the hub right in the middle. Totally, totally. So yeah, you're not really trying to drive traffic from email to the podcast or to the YouTube. Not massively. Yeah. I've been considering more and more about whether or not I'm missing out on that because the click-throughs are so high. Mm. Um, I certainly wouldn't be bothered about driving from newsletter to YouTube because I think the plays are worth so little and the... Um, discoverability that you've got on YouTube is going to make such a huge difference. I do continue to use the newsletter to drive reviews, especially on Apple Podcasts and now Spotify's got reviews um, and uh, plays to certain episodes um, very rarely. But the reviews thing in subs uh, is always in the newsletter because again, 100 to 1 in terms of my view of value audio to uh, right, so you will you will push people from the newsletter to the podcast because those yes. subscribers are rarely to individual episodes, but just to don't forget that you should be subscribed. Right. Or when it's my birthday, for instance, every time it's my birthday, I say if you want to get me a present, give me five stars. Like, and that's in the newsletter. Yeah. So, so re- reviews really do matter. I heard that those were overrated. Not sure. Not sure. <laughs> it's just just do it. Like, yeah. not going to hurt. You right. Know, not definitely, definitely helps. I think when you uh, invite people on and they do a little, it, like if they look to see, like, oh, what's this podcast about? Having some reviews definitely, I think, um, can help. Maybe not. It's maybe not a linear effect, but if you have if you have more than like a, a very low floor, that that, that yeah, could be worth doing. I think. Sure. And the other thing as well to consider with um, Spotify, I've got it right because it's done globally and it's one set of reviews. Apple Podcasts, it's per territory. Oh, yeah. So if you put your um, Apple Podcast show URL in, it'll go Apple blah, 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 slash, and then it'll be US or GB or CA. And you can change that and actually see the reviews from different places. If you use Chartable, you can see all of them. It doesn't really matter. But you'll notice that there's some territories that you're probably pretty big in that you don't have any reviews in. And that's not very cool. Like if you're... Australia is a good example. They speak the language, they listen to podcasts, but you may have one review which just looks like it sucks Um, (laughs) a good hack for people that are struggling to get the reviews up if people are tagging you on instagram and saying that i really enjoyed your stuff or tagging you on twitter especially if they send you dms just reply really appreciate that thank you man or whatever you want to reply with Mm -hmm. by the way while i've got you would you mind giving me a five-star review like you'll convert so much more highly that way that's a great tip actually I'd, i'd never do that and I could probably, since I don't, since I'm not huge, that would actually move the needle if I actually sure. just ask people. Yeah. Yeah. And you'll tick over it three, five, ten reviews a week or something. Yeah, yeah. Make sure that you've got the link. Uh, here's another thing actually that you can do. Um, so Bitly, bit.ly, mm-hmm. um, they make really nice short links from Apple and Spotify that aren't Bitly's. So it's, I think, app.co or apl.co slash gobbledygook short. But it's short, right? 
like the actual Apple show link is pretty long and ugly. Mm -hmm. uh, and Spotify is super long and super ugly. And that, I think, shortens to spo.fi mm. slash five characters of nothing. Um, but if you've got both of those, that looks a lot neater. When you send it to somebody, if you're tweeting, it looks a lot neater as well. Nice. So that And that's free, right? Nice. And I mean, you can track if you wanted to dig into the analytics for some reason, but right. that's nice. a cool thing to do. Nice, nice. So I know we have a mutual friend in uh, David Perel, right? Yes. And I'm, I suspect we have others, though. Tell me, tell me about what, what is your scene in in Austin? Like, who who do you who do you hang out with? What do you do around here? I'm curious to know more about you. So I moved to Austin about three and a half months ago. Uh, I came up for a month in November. Loved it. Wasn't as hot as it is now, <laughs> uh, but still really enjoyed the fact that it's super social. Hanging about with Zach Talander, who is a weightlifting YouTuber. A lot of people will probably be subscribed to him. Um, Sky King, who does podcast ads. He does Logan Paul's podcast ads. He's got a great company called Modern Stoa. Um, then David was already a good buddy. He'd been on the show a ton. I've met a lot of interesting people through him. I went to Scott Alexander's Astral Codex 10 meetup where there was a lot of neurodivergent people. Yeah. And uh, based in Austin and Max and Jared and the guys that do that are amazing. I mean, anyone that's just thinking of, uh, if you're interested in ideas, I've never been anywhere with such high quality conversations as Austin. Like the, the hit rate on good, interesting chat is just it's second to none in my opinion nice nice yeah no i i obviously agree i'm i'm enjoying myself tremendously here and uh yeah where where do you, where do you hang out where do you where do you go you, you are you a bar guy are you a nightlife guy so i are run nightclubs a... for 15 years that yeah. was my job right so I, I was the guy stood on the front door in a tight pair of jeans and with a clipboard and then i was the guy telling the guys with clipboards and tight jeans what to do and okay so late night stuff really for me is just I don't know. It must be like being a porn star that's like, you know, spent the entire day at work and then gets home and their partner's like, oh, do you want to have a quickie? And you go, oh, no, not for me. Um, a lot of daytime and afternoon sort of nature, coffees, out in beer gardens, cosmic coffee type stuff. Um, huge fan of sauna cold plunge. So Kuya or um, Squatch, both places that I like to go to. Training, so uh, archetype boxing, atomic athlete is fantastic. Squatch is also great. Um, Lift ATX is the best atmosphere in a gym that I've ever found. And I've been to hundreds of gyms around the world. Indoor, outdoor place with AstroTurf and huge Mexican guys covered in tattoos and slip not playing or like gangster rap. That's out in the east? Yeah, it's in the That's east That's near where I live. I, I see it. Dude, it's I think Squatch is awesome. so good. Yeah. Like Lift, and it's 40 bucks a month. Yeah. For an unlimited membership. And the, the kit's great and the atmosphere's fantastic. So I go there on a Saturday uh, training at Gold South Central at the moment. Um, what else do I like? So a lot of the Tex-Mex, Gueros, Fressers. Um, been to Three Forks with David a lot because he's f fancy and he likes to eat in nice places. <laughs> um, but yeah, man, I've spent most of my time south. I haven't really gone up to the domain pretty much at all, maybe mm -hmm. twice. Uh, north of Austin is kind of like, I don't know, a, a north of the wall or something. I don't really know what's yeah, up there sure. very much. Um, I'm, I'm moving now so i've been in the same airbnb for a hundred and something days and oh, wow. i'm moving finally into a, a, a house this week so i'm excited to kind of have a space that doesn't nice. feel like i'm uh living on borrowed time because you do all your recording from the house is that Correct. right yeah nice nice and i guess all your uh team it's remote like you're not doing things also face correct. to face with that would be that would be one interesting thing actually that people should probably look at getting dropbox premium 
So yeah. Dropbox Pro is just absolutely necessary. Um, if you are struggling with your with the pace of your internet before paying to upgrade your internet, just try hardwiring yourself in. Hmm. So just go Ethernet, like a 30-meter Ethernet cable, sure. go across any house or any flat. Mm-hmm. And uh, the pace of uh, the difference for my Wi-Fi is insane. It's absolutely wild. So I think <laughs> I get like a... 100 megabytes upload on the on the ethernet and it's two megabytes or something normally so i can get a file across to my video guy in no time um other tools and stuff just to kind of wrap that bit up uh google docs is what we use for a ton of our stuff notion a little bit although i'm more of a fan of google docs because we don't need to journey through ideas we more just need to have instructions that are set down um whatsapp is for a big chunk of it and me and my video guy speak Everything that we talk about is on Facebook Messenger, and I have no idea why. <laughs> but we just used to do that when we were before we were like business partners, and now we've just grandfathered in how we used to keep up to date with each other. But it's like kind of a low tech solution. But Dropbox Premium is absolutely necessary. It's just it's un- I can't believe how good the service of Dropbox what does Dropbox Pro get you over something like Google Drive, more like storage and um, integrated files on your desktop so you can have you can navigate the files uh, i'm going to presume you can do this on windows as well but you can definitely do it on mac folders and files can be held on your computer as if they're just files on your computer but they're also hosted in the cloud oh sure whereas okay. drive you're navigating through a web browser there right. may be an app i don't know right but dropbox is so seamless like so it's just drag and drop right you're just yeah, shifting yeah. stuff around your desktop and a file then leaves your uh, export thing and arrives in the video guy's thing. Oh, here's another one. Uh, Frame.io. Are you familiar with that? No. So it's less so for podcasts, but definitely if you're a YouTuber or a creator that's working externally with an editor, it is a way, it's a cloud-based video collaboration tool so that editors can upload drafts of videos and you can go through and mark points and make comments and you can have threads that reply to each of them. Um, it's I, it's so fantastic. It, this is how pretty much every big YouTuber is editing their videos, I think, and uh, if they're working remotely with a, a an editor, and it works with uh, Premiere Pro and all of the like After Effects and all of the other uh, big editing suites, and it's integrated in that. So they press one button, it appears online. You put your notes in, and then when they go back onto their program in the next morning or whatever, when you put your edits in that the edits sit there in the program it's Mm. fantastic nice so like if you need to do more quick cut stuff especially for down the pipe youtubes frame.io very good i'd be remiss not to ask you how you think about web3 obviously you know you have a um a growing successful stack if you will on the on the web2 creator platforms but you're a smart guy i'm sure you're always looking ahead we're talking a little bit before in the in the office here about urbit and various things that we're seeing in web three how do you think about this are you you know taking any types of measures to kind of future proof yourself or get you know make make early investments as a creator i mean in uh web three rails crypto rails uh are you do you expect this to come very soon and it's going to be important for creators or do you think it's going to be a while before someone like you even needs to really take it very seriously i am as newbie as it's going to come i can have a conversation about what crypto means and what web3 means for people sure but when it comes to the nuts and bolts and also really like how that's going to uh, manifest 
dude i'm such a noob with this stuff so sure. I, I would love to hear from you about the things that i need to keep my eyes and ears out for however um one dynamic that people should be aware of i i know that web3 is super important i don't deny that the fundamental um technology that underpins uh defi and nfts and stuff probably can and will in the future be used for really important things one thing to like sing from the other side of the hymn sheet a little bit the inertia of people's routines is the sort of thing that you can't overestimate like it is an absolute force to be reckoned with people it's a surprise out there but people still fucking use facebook right of course like why do they use facebook because they used facebook yeah. for a long time yeah and as you start to fragment the internet off even web 2 so you start to split that off more and more people become further ingrained into the way that they use their technology mm -hmm. and it's such an intimate relationship with that technology as well that um from my side i have a tiny amount of money in crypto i spend barely any time sort of learning about it unless something breaches like a, a cool interesting sure. headline um but give me what i need to know about the creator economy and creators and how web3 is potentially going to impact me well sure we could talk about it but i i mean in a way your answer is is perfectly good and interesting um because maybe maybe you're right maybe it is not yet worth the attention of serious ambitious creators like that to me that's a perfectly valid that's kind of the revealed you know implication of what you're saying which, yes which that's is not that, the state yeah. that's not the stated one yeah, yeah right yeah. but the, but to me that's that's perfectly uh revealing and and possibly the the most intelligent way to think about it like because it is still very early and there's so much interesting stuff coming out all the time every month there's some new weird interesting protocol or tooling that can let creators do something with crypto so to me it's it's a very uh fascinating dynamic exciting space basically the uh, the way that Web three and crypto tools will map onto the creator economy. To me, it's 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 awesome and fascinating, and I'm quite bullish that you know in the next ten years, let's say, um, crypto will uh, significantly change the underlying economics and and the processes and systems that govern the creator economy. I think there's a lot there that that we could talk about, but. I think your your response is probably is, is perhaps the most rational and intelligent one, honestly, because it's still so early. So m I could tell you a lot about it, um, but I wouldn't necessarily encourage someone like you to do X, Y, or Z, because I think you could absolutely absolutely be right. And actually, I might be uh, too early. I might be wasting too much time and energy, yeah. um, kind of paying a lot of attention and being really interested and excited by different little tools and these new patterns that are emerging, but it could very well be too early. So with that caveat, we can still talk about it, but with that caveat that I'm definitely not urging you or anyone else to necessarily in, you know, move over from what they're doing to something new to me, probably the most, ex the single most exciting aspect and important, uh, aspect that I'm, I'm, I'm convinced will fundamentally change the creator economy is just the simple idea of, um, audiences essentially owning the brands that they invest so much of their attention and energy and love and passion into. To me, this is is this is inevitable. And just because, well, for many reasons, one is just that it's just so much better for all parties involved, basically. Um, and it it's like pouring gasoline on an audience or a community growth 
um, vector, basically, for the obvious reason that, you know, if I'm watching Modern Wisdom all the time and I love it and I'm writing comments on the YouTube channels and I'm, uh, you know, contributing to the newsletter comments or the discord that you have, if I'm if I, and I'm telling all my friends about it, right, because I love it in a way, I really am creating value for the larger brand. I actually am a contributor. And, you know, there's a clear gradient, I think, in the the history of modern capitalism where, you know, capital and information both want to become more and more efficient. They want to more and more over time uh, reflect actual value creation. You know, value accrual should over time increasingly reflect where value is being created and being contributed. Um, that's always there's always friction involved. There's always inefficiencies involved that prevent you know, value creation and value accrual from being perfect. But to me, there's a clear gradient in, in modern capitalism where every passing decade um, that gets a little bit more efficient and a little bit more aligned. And crypto to me represents one of the one of the most momentous inflection points in that precisely, because this is where the, one of the biggest, I think, um, inefficiencies or frankly, kind of um, forms of unfairness in a way. You know, it's like today we all now are starting to feel like, oh, I create a lot of value for Facebook just by being on it, or I create a lot of value for YouTube or Twitter just by being on it. That's starting to become more more understood and felt and appreciated, and people are starting to actually feel, oh, you know, I'm being exploited by Facebook. I'm being exploited by Twitter or whatever. I think the next wave of that is audience members, uh, people who are, who are uh, big fans of creators starting to feel almost entitled. And, almost, and I think rightfully so, as the technology allows it and makes it more and more feasible and cheap and, and efficient to actually share the upside of the brand. I think, I think we will reach a point where the creators and the media brands that use crypto rails to actually give um, audience an economic stake in the larger brand that they are, in fact, contributing to, the brands and the media entities that do that are going to zoom way um, above and beyond way faster than all of the other media brands that try not to do that just because people are going to be like, oh, this is awesome. I can actually get paid. The to genuinely be incentivized. Yeah, the incentives are just so much better aligned that I think that's going to, when the, when the tooling is there to make that n normal and efficient for all parties, it's going to be such a form of gasoline for for the gro for, for growth that I think it'll be a kind of evolutionary game theory story where like, You'll have to do that to, yeah. to survive. Or else you're going to be out competing. Exactly, and, and so so th so that to me, just for all of those reasons, is is one specific claim in how Web three changes the creator economy that I'm increasingly convinced of that in particular. There may be a few others, but um, that that would be that would be one that I would talk about. One thing that I've been thinking to do with that, I've heard that yeah. uh, proposition previously. Can you imagine how cool it would be if you were a show and and, and let's say you've got um, a Jordan Peterson coming on. And you would be able to sell an NFT in advance of a section of the Jordan Peterson interview. And you would, let's say that you would need to sell it uh, two weeks before the episode went out and then it gets sold. And you say, the person that buys this NFT, not only do they get exclusive access to this portion of the episode, so no one else on the planet is going to hear it, but you get to ask the question that I ask Jordan Peterson. Mm. So you get your own non-fungible owned version of that. And you can go and do what you want with it. So do you want to make a YouTube video of this uh, audio in the background? Do you want to do, you know how Martin Shkreli owned that, uh, was it like a So Solid crew 
or a 50 cent uh, Wu-Tang Clan album and no one else gets to hear it. Right. Like, do you want to ask Jordan, like, the question that you want to ask him? Imagine how much money some people would pay (laughs) for that and imagine how much, how valuable it would be for someone whose life's been changed by a creator or who's just like a super fan or whatever. And you would be able to, obviously, you're limited by the fact that it's the guy with the most money who gets, it's like pay to play here. But um, that would be cool. That's interesting. So basically what you're saying is itemizing individual podcast questions you secure the guest you get the commitment uh, and, and an agreement to do a podcast is basically someone saying i agree to let you ask me x amount of questions and i'll yes. just answer them you could basically auction off individual questions yeah. basically well yeah. you would maybe do the full episode and then have 15 minutes at the end right, right. and have five minutes for each it's fascinating yeah it's fascinating and that cool. that would be a really cool way to drive some value i mean you could even say to the guest yo let's go 50 50 on this <laughs> And right. I mean, you know, if you're Jordan Peterson and you say, well, That's right, yeah. how much would people pay? How much do you think would be the maximum that people would pay for a five minute question custom asked to Jordan that they get to own and do what they want with? Yeah, it kind of depends if it's a bull market or a bear market. Uh, <laughs> but, um, no, but I, I think it would be I, grand. I think right? that's a fascinating idea. And I, I think you're going to see a, a ton of experimentation. Like you should totally just try that. You should totally do that. Um, you know, when, when the time is right, when you feel like it or whatever. Um, so I think there's going to be a ton of experimentation. The problem, I think, for creators right now is that this wild experimentation phase i think is going to be quite a while and until there are real kind of durable patterns that emerge where is there a way to integrate the current infrastructure that we have youtube rss feeds which Mm -hmm. for the people that don't know like how podcasts get delivered into your ears is the most spit and sawdust sellotaped and cable tied together awful system of how it works, but is there a way of integrating that with Web3? Yeah, so a few people are working on this, a few people are trying to do this, um, and in fact, Adam Curry, I believe one of the kind of godfathers of podcasting is actually pretty deep into um, some some experimentation with this on Bitcoin, I believe, if, if, if I'm not mistaken. Um, so yeah, there are some, there are some apps and, and projects that will you know, connect uh, the Bitcoin Lightning Network, which is their kind of, you know, microtransaction uh, layer on top of uh, on, on top of the Bitcoin blockchain, there are some podcast apps that will let you basically, uh, tip in, in, in lightning, uh, for podcasts that you listen to. I, I believe Adam Curry is associated with that, if I'm not mistaken, then there are, yeah, a bunch of other, uh, experiments. But the thing is, I wouldn't really encourage anyone listening to necessarily go and build a podcast on that quite yet, just because it's still obscure. It's still going to be harder to, set up for people and uh, as you know if you if you want to grow a serious media or content project of any kind you have to go where the people are fish where the fish are yeah yeah. you have to fish where the fish are and and you want to make things easy on people um and so yeah we're not yet at a place where any of the patterns have shaken out enough we don't know what what is the winning model going to be for how web3 affects podcasts like we we just don't know and so this is the um the like second mover advantage thing that's right yeah. Absolutely. And so I think it's rational to wait and see right now. I'd like to play with these things. I like to do different things. There are certain things I'm kind of more bullish on than others. But um, yeah, I think, frankly, you're, you're, um, you know, you were self-deprecating with your answer to the question. But I think your answer to the question is, is probably the rational and, and correct one for someone who's serious about building a media brand right now. Um, the ex- Some exceptions are, you know, people who are uh, doing content related to Web3 that can make more sense, you know, if you actually use some of that tooling. 
But then a lot of that content falls into what I, I've written about. I've called this like the Web3 trap, which is a lot of content creators who become really interested in Web3 and using Web3 tools to, you know, monetize or to or to run their platforms, they end up only talking about Web3, basically. And, you know, that it can kind of work um, as like a pretext for why people should be interested, but it becomes very self-referential and kind of empty. And so the what you really want is to have a you know, project where you have real um, angles and interesting insights on something real, some kind of expertise, something that you that you've worked hard to understand and that you have that's valuable to share with the world. Um, and then eventually that stuff is going to move on to Web3 Rails. But right now there's like this kind of trap people can find themselves in where they're like doing Web3 content, but actually all they ever talk about is Web3 content. Like the inside baseball thing is uh, yeah. it, it does sort of switch people off. A yeah. little bit. Yeah, well, it's, it's it runs out of steam. It can only go so far, right? So, um, yeah, I think we're definitely not at the point where people want to be building too hardcore on on Web3 things. I mean, there are I, some interesting kind of edge cases, like Urbit is something I'm very interested in right now. And, you know, there are actually interesting writers and creators who are kind of building on Urbit in a way right now. Um, and if you're starting from scratch and if you, you have no audience and um, you're not... A, a lot of people are not that interested in having like a massive audience. This is also something I'm seeing a lot of. There's some fatigue around like, you know, a lot of people are just like, I don't want a million YouTube subscribers. That's not that's not a game I want to play. Um, but I do want to, you know, have uh, uh, an invigorating, active um, intellectual life, right? I, I do want to be reading a lot. I want to be writing a lot. And I want to be sharing my ideas <clears throat> with a non-trivial audience w- with some community of other people who are smart, who I respect. A lot of people want, a large number of people want that. And so in a way they're creators and they want to be creators, but they're not, there's something very different than trying to build a, a media brand, right? Um, and I think this is, I think people sleep on this. I think this is underestimated or underappreciated. Um, in a way, the YouTube culture and the podcast culture and, and these kind of creator economy um, uh, domains have almost overshadowed um, the the fact that there is actually like a much larger space of meaningful intellectual life that people want the internet uh, to, to build. Don't forget that th- that is the platforms making you play their game. Yeah. Right? They want you to be the most consistent. All of the stuff that I've said today, like, what I've said is this is how you should optimize for having a successful channel, in my opinion. Right not for how you can indulge your cottage industry passion of right. Warhammer from the 1990s or right. something, right? Exactly. Like, and that is a really, really good point. I also think that there's a big divide here. There's multiple divides as we've fractured society into its little atomized individual groups. But uh, Web 2 to Web 3 is a divide, and Millennials to Gen Z is a big divide. Mm-hmm. And I think that you're seeing with Gen Z, you know, very different attitudes around dating, around gender around sexuality around relationships with parents around goals that they want uh, and also within the goals i think a big chunk of that will be people just trying to recapture a sense of like i just want to i just want to have a conversation with my friends i I actually do not care about the success of this project and they genuinely mean it it's not a cope it's not an inner citadel that they're retreating to they actually mean i just want to and you see this with uh, frictionless apps like stereo did this megaphone are doing this a little bit you put a phone in the middle of the room you press the record button 
everybody talks around a table, you finish recording and then it uploads it and it's on the it's distributed to your platforms. You know, the frictionlessness of that is evidently not meant for power power users. Mm-hmm. Obviously meant for people that just want to like That's right. make a thing. And I think the size of that economy is bigger than a lot of people think. I would agree. And and it's often extremely smart people, right? So it's like um there are there are there exist in the world writers or potential writers who um, have the raw IQ and they have the erudition and they have the ability and the discipline to bring into the world an extraordinary body of work. And they also don't particularly care about building a million subscriber YouTube channel. And they don't particularly care about having a a hundred thousand newsletter subscribers. They don't care about those games, but they do care about doing the work and they have what it takes to do tremendous work. I think that's like a really interesting, unexploited kind of social layer. I don't know whether you can exploit it. Well, that's what I mean. Yeah, it's like unexploitable. But when I say unexploited, all I mean is there's social value there. There's intellectual value. There's cultural value that currently is latent and, and not platforms are not um, in enabling it, platforms are not finding a way to mobilize and empower those types of people. And so that is somewhere where I'm a little bit more bullish on Web3 in the shorter term, because I, I'm starting to see that platforms like like networks and uh, protocols like Urbit are creating these weird underground spaces where that type of person actually is is migrating and wanting to really genuinely create meaningful culture. And right now that's very badly monetized. It's 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 severely under monetized because right now people do that on like Facebook and they don't get paid anything for it or they do it on Twitter. They don't get paid anything for it. So to me, that is more short term um, bullish for, for Web3 because I do think you're going to find protocols and systems that actually incentivize that type of work. Um, and allow people to work hard writing and sharing great ideas and, and having these insanely powerful, intelligent communities. And monetization will occur in some kind of interesting, creative way. It's, I think it's going to take some time to crack to crack the code of how exactly that should be structured. But I do think you're going to see that. And you're, I think you're much more likely to see that on Web3. I think it's going to, there are going to be pockets that emerge like that that are going to kind of melt people's faces off when you realize like, 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 like you're going to have these like group chats basically of a few dozen people that are going to be worth like millions of dollars. The, the, the group chat is going to have a market cap of like multi-million dollars. Um, and, no, and it's going to come out of the blue and no one's going to That's understand. Why. So, so that kind of thing, I think, is is from the content creator perspective. If you are a thinker or a writer, um, th- that's something that I think you can look to in Web three in in the more immediate term. Um, but if you do want to build a big media brand, that's I, I think it's not going to be relevant. You know, it'll gradually become more relevant. But you know, I would never advise someone like you to to you know significantly change what you're doing necessarily. So, yeah. This was an absolute masterclass, Chris. I'm really appreciate. Uh, I really appreciate your time, and I, I'm grateful to you for being so generous with your time. Uh, a lot of knowledge here on growing a podcast, growing a YouTube, and uh, it's great just to learn more about kind of you know your your positioning in the Austin in the Austin scene, who you know, and uh, what you've been up to. Uh, maybe uh, maybe I'll have to come find you at Lyft ATX. Maybe maybe we'll do it. Maybe we'll do a video series where we. Uh, We'll turn my dad bod into um, a super jacked alpha male. Uh, I think that could be a good that could be a good title, a good collab. Maybe we'll talk about it. Nice, dude. I appreciate you. Yeah, it's uh, it's cool. It's fascinating to see what's going to happen with the creator economy. I appreciate your time. Yeah, man. Thanks. I, I think my audience will really benefit from your insights. So thanks for sharing all of them. And that's a wrap, man. Hey, thank you so much for listening to the podcast. You made it all the way to the very end, so you must really like the show. In that case, I would be super grateful if you'd be so kind to leave a review on Apple Podcasts. All you have to do is go to otherlife.co slash review. That's otherlife.co 
forward slash review. And it'll send you an Apple podcast. Just leave a review. You can be honest. Tell me what you really think. I'd really appreciate it because it'll help other people find the show. And I'm really trying to grow out the podcast. So thanks for listening. And thank you for leaving a review. I really appreciate it.